We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by a couple of well-known Taiwan hands, those being Linda Arrigo or... Eilinda. Yes, you got my name pronounced just about right, Gavin. And yeah, I'm known as Eilinda more than Linda Arago. And Jerome Keating. Good to see you again, Gavin. There we go. Anyway, tonight we discuss the questioning of members of a pro-unification party, concern over Chinese military aircraft flights around Taiwan, amendments to the Political Donations Act, clean air rallies, and year-end festivities at the Taipei 101. But we'll begin with the Beijing number 2, Intermediate People's Court on Thursday sentencing 44 Taiwan nationals to prison terms of between 2 and 15 years on charges of telecom fraud and they're the first verdicts to be delivered on cases involving Taiwanese fraud suspects deported from other countries to China. The 44 were among 85 suspects sent to Beijing in July of last year from Kenya as part of a cross-border telecom fraud investigation. Now the government here in Taipei is calling on Beijing to respect the rights of the Taiwan nationals to appeal the court's decision and also to be able to receive visits from their family members. Mainland Affairs Council Minister Catherine Jung says the government is also hoping that China will share information detailing the facts and evidence from the case with Taiwan and the government has also of course been calling on Beijing to return all the Taiwanese suspects to face trial here and says that the alleged crimes should be investigated by both sides. Now the Mainland Affairs Council has also released some figures concerning Taiwan nationals deported to China and they say that 288 of them have been deported to China from various countries which include Spain, Kenya, Malaysia, Cambodia, Armenia, Vietnam and Indonesia since April of last year while 427 Taiwan nationals suspected of cross-border telecom fraud have been sent directly back to Taiwan in that same period. So Jerome, were you expecting them to be sentenced or did you think sort of miraculously Beijing would send them back here? Well, I think Beijing is going to get as much capital as it can out of this. They want to keep emphasizing that they are under their jurisdiction, so they will probably try them and then eventually send them back for us to house them. Well, I think what's scary about this is the potential for PRC taking revenge against political opponents uh, rather than just taking these telecommunication uh, call phone uh, crooks. And even if they're crooks, they should be in Taiwan where their friends can visit them and jail their relatives. But we know that uh, China has a lot of uh, intelligence feelers and infiltration into Taiwan and is collecting information on who it opposes. Uh, So the danger is in the extension of those uh, arrests and extension of surveillance. So obviously the government here in Taipei has been this is going on for years now of course this deportation from third countries to China from fraud suspects from Taiwan but do you think the government has been warning about this but do you think it should be down to the individuals now to realise that if they're involved in telecom fraud against Chinese targets in China the chances are they're going to be sent to China? Well, they can be sent to China. I think you know they're involved in fraud, so they're trying to avoid being sent anywhere. <laughs> but uh, they, you know, they could be sent to the country they're in. They, of course, purposely go to other countries so they are less under, or they are more under the radar. 
But uh, uh, I think that they could uh, suffer consequences due to China's anti-separatism law, which is a very clear violation of rights of speech and rights of assembly and uh, basically human rights. Do you think that Taipei's got a leg to stand on here, though? I mean, do you think that Beijing is going to go, oh, let's send them back, or Beijing will just completely continue to ignore Taipei's calls for them to be sent straight back to Taiwan to face trial? I, I agree with Jerome that I think they're probably uh, China's going to make whatever political uh, yardage it can out of this, but uh, it's basically a violation of human rights still. And of course, there's been arguments to say the telecom fraud suspects that have been sent back to Taiwan over the years, when they've gone to court, the courts have been rather lenient with them. Mm, they probably could be more lenient in Taiwan than they are in China. That's a problem of ours. <laughs> Maybe we should learn to be a little more strict on such things. The, uh... Do you think these fraud suspects that have been sentenced will be allowed to see their family members? I think it's going to be very difficult for their family members to see them. Right, and this happened yesterday, and that's all the news we know about it, so we shall move on to some rather more crunchy, more difficult news. And that being prosecutors in Taipei questioning four members of the pro-unification New Party on suspicion of violating the National Security Act. Now, that's led to controversy and allegations of political persecution. New Party spokesman Wang Bingjong, along with party youth wing executives Ho Han Ting, Lin Mingjung and Chen Sejun, were questioned on Tuesday of this week in connection with the leaking of classified information in a case involving convicted Chinese spy Zhou Hongshu. Zhou, of course, was sentenced to 14 months in prison in Taipei in September for violating the National Security Act and attempting to bribe a government official. Now, the four new party employees are all denying any ties with the convicted Chinese spy. Beijing is also wading in on this and saying that it's expressing concern about the investigation into the new party with Beijing's Taiwan Affairs Office releasing a brief statement praising the new party for its opposition to Taiwan independence and its upholding of the One China principle. And Beijing went on to accuse the Tsai administration of cracking down on and persecuting groups and individuals who support unification. And it warned that China is paying close attention to the developments in the case. For their part, Wang Ho, Lin Chen and new party deputy chairman Lin Shenfeng have also slammed the investigation claiming it's part of a plan by the Tsai administration to use police state tactics to silence and bully the opposition to, and also using what they're calling green terror to deny freedom of speech. Of course, the use of the term green terror is a play on words on white terror and, of course, martial law. And, of course, Linda, you know a bit about martial law in Taiwan. Uh, yes. Do the new party have a leg to stand on in their lofty claims here? Well, I think it's laughable. I think it's really laughable. Now, of course, they can say that, but it shows that they haven't studied Taiwan history. They haven't studied the role of the KMT and uh, the mainlander establishments in enforcing really draconian laws. You know, letting people after out after 14 months for national security uh, violations, I mean, that used to be off with your head, or at least 10 years. And, uh, you know, I mean, here they were arrested openly with uh, 100 television cameras on them. They were released the next day day. Uh, and, you know, these people obviously don't have any sense of what really happened under white terror to make that kind of comparison. Do you think they're probably using it to get sympathy? And do you think the Taiwanese public will have sympathy with them, with these claims they're making? 
I kind of don't think the I don't think any significant number will. But I'm very curious as to what is the beef? Where's the beef? What is the national security violation? And uh, you know, we have to notice that uh, the Taipei Times uh, quite a few years ago already uh, published an article that over 400 Taiwan retired military people had retired to China. So the scale of uh, so-called leaking of national uh, security information has been on a huge scale. Uh, I have one more thing to say about this, uh, about this whole um, continuation of Cold War type um, mentality. And that is in 1979, the democratic movement, the precursor to the DPP, requested open relations with China at the end of martial law. They obviously, the Taipei Prosecutor's Office is saying that these new party people had a relationship with the convicted Chinese spy, Zhou, and there's, there's some leaked information to do with Zhou's case. Do you think it's... It's all a bit mysterious at the moment, the case. Well, I have to say, yeah, where's the beef? But, you know, considering that China is arresting uh, uh, people for being spies for Taiwan, uh, well, so, you know, Taiwan, of course, does want to protect itself from all the loss of military information. That's just a, a continual leakage, a hemorrhage out of Taiwan with all the materials being bought. And I could go into this at length, okay? But uh, Taiwan hardly has any secrets from China. And Jerome, the new party... New Party, when you look at it, their heyday was in the 1990s. I think at that time they one time gained 21 seats in the legislative yen, but they are dead in the water, and therefore, really, I see it as, again, yeah, the Chinese Communist Party trying to get it the camel's nose in the tent, and... They they only have I think two city council seats now, so they they have no real following. So I would say, yeah, where's the beef? Where's the money? Where's the money coming from? Well, the money is a big issue. Mm. Where you know where who is supporting this, and why would anyone want to join the new party? And it's obviously pro-independence and therefore and not pro-independence it's pro-anti-independence and they therefore this is something that China really wants to back they want unification obviously this is the three of these guys were from the youth wing of the new party I mean do you think the new party is a party that can attract young people I don't think so. I think it will only attract those who want to kind of get a little bit of attention in media, press, and perhaps can see the money can be there. I, I don't quite agree with Jerome on this. I think there are a lot of sincere people who uh, want unification with China on the basis of Chinese nationalism. I think their rights of speech and uh, uh, promoting their position should be protected. Uh, but at the same time, I'm aware that going back 20 years or more that people who were promoting unification with China were getting money through the back door. But do you think the government's playing? Obviously, they've claimed the new party and some KMT officials have claimed that the government is behind this 
rather than you, the judiciary. Do you think? Do you think it's a government that's complete baloney? Uh, I think that we don't have enough information right now. I mean, which government? Our government or their government? <laughs> They're claiming that, of course, it's the Tsai administration trying to clamp down on freedom of speech. Do you oh no, no, no way! The and that the you know they, as Linda said, they let them go the next day. This is really a tempest in a teapot kind of thing. But do you think it could, down the road, affect the local elections next year? Or do you think it's not a big enough issue yet to do that? No, I don't think this particular thing will affect local elections at all next year. The new party, as I say, I, the most funny thing from that, if anyone remembers back in 2000 when Lee Ao ran for president under the new party, that was a, he enjoyed it. He refused to join the party and he only got, I think, 16,000 votes, but he enjoyed the media attention. Of course, one member of the new party, when his house was raided earlier this week, the police said they found lots of money in Chinese renminbi, and he said it was through legitimate reasons he had the money. Obviously, this has got reasons have got to come out why he has the money, but do you think at the moment they're enjoying public support or not public support? If you had to say yay or nay? I will say no. I would guess no. Right, and we'll move on from there because it's an ongoing case and we obviously don't want to say too much about it unless we say something wrong. Anyway, now ongoing far seas training missions by China's Air Force and Navy that see ships and aircraft encircling the island have led to alarmist headlines in the international media this week. World War Three: China planning military invasion of self-rule Taiwan, says expert, screamed Britain's Daily Express. Increased military drills suggest mainland China is preparing to strike against Taiwan, experts say, yelled the South China Morning Post. Escalating military drills mean China is preparing to strike Taiwan, experts say, mumbled Newsweek. And Chinese jet patrols stoke war fears in Taiwan, claimed the Australian. Now, the experts they're all referring to are one and the same, that being a Macau-based military observer who goes by the name of Anthony Wong Dong, who earlier this year happened to talk up the pen possibility of a new Sino-Indian war. Now, the Ministry of National Defence here in Taiwan has said that it's monitoring all Chinese operations in the area and will scramble armed jets if necessary in response to increased military activity by China near Taiwan. However, defence officials say there have been no unusual manoeuvres by the Chinese aircraft. Now, on Thursday of this week, though, the military said they will no longer issue reports on the movements of Chinese military aircraft on naval vessels near Taiwan unless something does occur. And Defence Minister Feng Shuquan simply said that that decision was made because the ministry will not dance to China's tune because Beijing is playing psychological warfare with Taiwan with these operations. So, Jerome, do you think Beijing's playing psychological warfare with these operations? And do you think by reporting them in Taiwan, it's stoking somewhat public panic? I think there is an element of intimidation or psychological warfare there, but I think also they are basically giving their people experience in, you know, knowing the lay of the land. They come up, come through the Bashi Channel into the Pacific and then go back between Japan and Taiwan. So their pilots are becoming familiar, and that's a tactic that is strategic value for any country, even if it's on the other side, and there is the intimidation, so I think the government is wise in not reporting this 
I basically agree with Jerome. I want to note that in 1996, when uh, China shot missiles over Taiwan to tell people don't vote for uh, Li Donghui, uh, that uh, actually he probably uh, benefited from a backlash. So uh, people in Taiwan, surprisingly, are afraid of China, but they don't seem to be that easily intimidated by that kind of direct action. What about these alarmist international headlines? Well, I think we've seen those kind of things before, okay? And uh, perhaps China does want uh, to give Taiwan this sense that they're, they could lash out any time, uh, but the overall international situation I don't think looks like that. Yeah, I think the people that throw those alarmist international headlines out—they don't live here, you know. They, don't, we, you know, we're going along peacefully, and you know, they, they, they need something to say that will catch attention. So war is going to break as a good attention getter. Anyway, we'll have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Legislative Internal Administration Committee passed a review of amendments to the Political Donations Act this week. Now, the amendment sets an upper limit on the amount of donations that political parties can pass on to their candidates annually. Now, under these amendments, political parties will not be allowed to donate more than 25 million NT to presidential and vice-presidential candidates and will also be banned from donating more than 2 million NT to legislative candidates. Candidates for the Posts of city or county mayors or commissioners will not be allowed to receive more than 3 million NT from their respective parties, while donations to candidates for city and county council seats is set at half a million NT. Now, what's interesting here is data provided by the Control UN shows that during the last national election, the KMT's presidential and vice presidential candidates received a combined total of 200 million NT in such donations, while the DPP's Tsai Ing-wen and Chen Jianren received 6. 3 million NT in party donations. So there's a bit of a disparity there, isn't there, Jerome? Definitely. The playing field needs to be leveled. And, of course, another factor I think that is here that should be examined, that this could be a way to launder money. To launder money from the party coffers into other people's hands. Uh, I think that probably those numbers are an underestimate on both sides, both for the KMT and for the DPP, because there's lots of different ways that resources are channeled, uh, including human resources, advertising materials, all the other kinds of things. But certainly it is uh, David versus Goliath, with David being the DPP, even though the DPP is now the ruling party. And the background for this is that the KMT had, and probably still indirectly controls, huge assets. In the 1980s, uh, Julian Baum, the correspondent, did a lot of reports on this. He called it KMT Incorporated. Now, uh, can I give some of the figures on the party assets? Because I think this is really gives us the uh, perspective. In 1993, uh, the party coffers, by their own statement, had the equivalent of 32 billion U.S. dollars. In 
Okay, now I did have some contact with people right at the time of Sensui Bin's election, 2000. That's when the party went in big for divesting itself of assets. But divesting of assets means selling it to your friends at a very deflated price. They give you kickbacks, and also they're still sitting on the assets and are political contributors. That's the important thing. So from 1993 to year 2000, only 10% of those assets were left. Uh, that's $3.3 billion U.S. dollars. Uh, so 90% of KMT assets were already gone when Sun Tzu-bin got into office. Now, 16 years later, only 2% of those assets are left, and that's about half a billion U.S. dollars. And it's only that half a billion U.S. dollars which is subject to the uh, ill-gotten gains. So basically, those ill-gotten gains have already been privatized. And so that's why I think this is related to the Donations Act, right? So the donations are are can be a huge huge quantities. And the Donations Act is now, of course, trying to level the field a little bit, but the KMT still controls huge assets, including things that they got on the stock market by manipulating the stock market. So you think the political parties could get around this then? I don't think they're going to get around. I think the KMT's political uh, financial power is going to remain there in the back, uh, giving them more control over their members. But uh, the various um, items in the in the new regulations are going to try to control that. I don't think it's going to be that easy to control just by regulations. But it's trying to prevent those huge financial sources from pumping up the KMT candidates. And the KMT candidates are not going to have the same motivation as before to toe the KMT line. Yeah, I would say I have two things here as well to add that the one, if I were a young KMT person, I would be wondering where is all this money going? In other words, in this last election, Eric Chu, as you say, in the party spent over 200 million, but they got shellacked, you know, and if you were shellacked with spending all that money, maybe some of that money was being filtered into other areas of laundering and if I were young KMT I'd be wondering we're not getting a piece of you know this is our party's assets and uh, it's going to the elders through different channels I think there has been some discontent in the past among uh, KMT uh, employees at the central party headquarters when they're worried about their pensions and their cushy semi-bureaucratic status now it's hard for us to know really what's in their heads but uh, uh we can see probably the KMT is going to partly try to remake itself as a native party, some element of it is, but I think the, the bus has already left the station on that. You know? right, and of course, these, these do, this Donation Act passed and it was a legislative committee, so it still has to go to the chamber floor to be voted on. But do you see the, do you see the lawmakers from across party lines agreeing on this? Uh, I think they will get enough. I won, of course, the DPP has the control, and I think they will get enough support from some KMT as well. And as Linda pointed out, there are some KMT that are really interested in being, you know, Taiwanese KMT and not pro-unification KMT. They, they have uh, adapted to the reality of what Taiwan is, but there are others that still long for home. So there's going to be... Uh, 
uh, split there. And it again, who's going to get the money? You know, that's that's where the track has to be followed. Yeah, but most of the money has already been dispersed. And from some cases where I had a little bit of inside information, it was a matter of a building being sold for a very small portion of its actual value. Uh, then uh, a lot of uh, splitting up of the uh, profits being divided up at that time, and then also kickbacks involved. Because that goes back to the Broadcasting Corporation of China, the China yeah. Motion Pictures Corporation. Yeah. Uh, well, well, mostly, I think, it, right, in fact, the night that Sun Bin was elected, I got an earful from some KMT people who worked at uh, China Broadcasting, and basically they said that there was a very rapid divestment two weeks before when they thought Sun Bin was going to be elected. Anyway, it's been another weekly thing with pollution this week, and now what has become a weekly look at the latest news about pollution here on Taiwan This Week, we're going to look at it again. Now, thousands of people rallied in Taichung and Kaohsiung this past weekend, calling on the government to restrict coal usage in energy production and to set higher fees for pollutant emissions. Now, hundreds of people gathered in the square of the Taichung City Council building to spell out the words that read no coal. They also formed a map of Taiwan. While in Kaohsiung, Environment Minister Li Yingyuan told reporters there that he joined the rally to assure the public that the government will act on the measures it's already proposed to tackle pollution. Now, we've talked a lot about the reasons behind the current pollution woes here in Taiwan, but Linda, I mean, you were warning people here in Taiwan about such problems over 20 years ago. Yes. So, of course, it must be somewhat frustrating that it's come down to public protests about clean air. Well, uh, I feel it's a great sarcasm that the Kuomintang, which never... Uh, put its foot into really the environmental issues uh, that the, the Kuomintang's Wu Duanyi participated, I hear, in the Taichung uh, uh, demonstration. But um, uh, it's opportunism. You know, I think it's really kind of uh, social movement opportunism for the KMT now to take this position. But the DPP, I have to say, has itself uh, not always been quite strong enough on environmental issues. However, uh, even saying that, um, I was with the uh, Green Party since 1997, um, and I take pollution personally because I have asthma, and I got seriously ill. I was really seriously ill in the 90s. I had an asthma attack from going to Kaohsiung overnight once in 1994, so I didn't really dare to go down to Kaohsiung. But the place has been incredibly cleaned up, and Kaohsiung is a real example where the DPP taking over uh, within uh, four years, eight years, 12 years has turned uh, a, 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 a swamp of muck of garbage, the Love River, into a wonderful uh, recreation area, has cleaned up uh, super sites, very heavily polluted super sites, and has done a huge effort for decreasing the pollution from all of those government plants. Um, and I, I interviewed once the head of the uh, Kaohsiung EPA and really saw their efforts as of 10 years ago. So it's true, it's not good enough, and I think that protest should be respected, but already the standard of air is much, much better than before. Now, Taichung, that's the coal-burning plant. Um, any environmentalist would have 20 years ago said this is going to kill a lot of kids, This burning this much coal that's close to the city. And Taiwan has a very high rate of respiratory problems, especially for children. 
So what do you what do you think the government could do to improve the pollution? I can't specifically say. Uh, probably those coal burning plants have to be fitted with very good uh, uh, pollution controls or stopped or totally stopped. Uh, I can't uh, say specifically at this point because there's so much heavy equipment, so much heavy infrastructure is terribly polluting. I think that overall in Taiwan and worldwide, uh, energy use can be economized. And Germany has been going this way and is economized greatly down to, you know, less than half. So I think Taiwan has to go that way now. Yeah. And of course, I think, you know, people, their job is to hold their feet to the fire. The uh, Taichung has the largest carbon dioxide emitter, I think, in the world. (laughs) Even though Taichung is a nice place to live and has a good reputation that wise. But no, I was in Kaohsiung in 1992. And I remember the Love River watching the dragon boat races. And I would have hated to have fallen in the river from one of the boats. <laughs> but now it's really cleaned up. So I'll agree certainly with Linda that there's been a lot of cleanup, but that's people's job, hold their feet to the fire. It's not easy to do any kind of a fast cleanup. Taiwan has had hundreds and thousands of tons of extremely dangerous chemicals buried in the ground, in the watersheds of of Kaohsiung, for example. And Chen uh, Shui-bian uh, started to try to do better enforcement. There was better enforcement for a while, but the background there is decades of flagrant abuse. Right. Do you think it's come down now to street protests? Do you think everybody knows and it's time the government did do something? Or do you think, like you said, it's not that easy to suddenly do something? Uh, It's not that easy to suddenly do something. And I think where someone like Chen Ju in Kaohsiung has uh, been in the administration for quite a while, uh, there has been steady improvement. And I would expect there can be more improvement. But we don't want to neglect that, uh, in many ways, the DPP has not stood up to its environmental promises. Of course, one of the arguments is the DPP are closing the nuclear power plants. And what's going to happen to energy? Because obviously you need to have energy, and if you close the nuclear power plants, you have to rely on the coal plant in Taichung. It's a no-win situation. Okay, that that definitely is a a good question. The you know the nuclear thing, uh, the coal, the and I'm trying to think what was that alternative to nuclear the gas. The yeah, but, uh, liquid natural gas. Yeah, the but the key to me is also getting legislators, like you say, not just street protests, but getting legislators who have that mentality that are really focused. And here is where I think the new power party is leading the way in many issues and as regards Taiwan. Taiwan made a lot of poor choices, okay, under, under I have to say again, the Kuomintang and its uh, friends in the cement industry, for example. Uh, that huge cement industry built up on the East Coast uses so much energy uh, that the whole nuclear power plant four would have been unnecessary. Uh, it also uh, uh, puts a uh, fine dust of uh, cement burning dust over all the agricultural areas. It's 
destroyed so much of the beautiful um, gorges on the East Coast. So there were a lot of poor decisions in the past, and some of those decisions are still continuing, and their after effects are still being felt. And of course, earlier early this week as well, we had a KMT member came out with a couple of foreigners at a press conference, and the foreigners basically said, well, other foreigners aren't coming here to work because of the pollution. Do you see this? Uh, I don't think it's that bad. I see people going, refusing or getting bonuses to work in Beijing because of the pollution. And, uh, you know, I've lived here for a long time. Linda, you've mentioned you've had your problems here with pollution. But uh, I'm, I think that's overblown. Uh, I, You know, people will go where there are good jobs. And I... So the pollution isn't as bad as Beijing, where executives do get bonuses for being there, but... uh it doesn't mean you don't stop working on it. Well, I think I have heard some complaints from tourists that the pollution is worse than they thought, but Taiwan's pollution is still only about a tenth of what China's is. Um, I think one issue that has to be brought in here is the consumers, that uh, something like an estimated 40% of Taiwan's pollution is from vehicles, from cars. And we've seen SUVs just uh, proliferate all over the place in the last 10 years. So I think Taiwan should go in the direction of Singapore. We we have a good public transportation system, and people should be forced to say, look, no more of your big uh, polluting vehicles. And before we go this evening, it's soon New Year's Eve, and the Taipei 101 is gearing up for its annual December 31st bash, but has changed things up a bit this year and has cut the number of fireworks due to, of course, air pollution woes again. And it's instead included an LED light show. And that light show will apparently feature virtual images of local singers Arme and Anna. Now, the number of fireworks, still there's still some in there. Now, the Taipei 101 says it's cut them down to 16,000 fireworks from 30,000 fireworks. And that's enough. Well, I heard this year Co said that, Mayor Co said that they're going to have the longest fireworks show in history, and I don't see how there's a cut down there unless they're shooting them one by one. Uh, but uh, I'm also a fireworks man in the sense of once a year or, you know, twice a year, so that's a tough call for me as far as uh, I can't see just cutting going real cold turkey on fireworks. Well, I've enjoyed those fireworks a few times, especially standing at uh, Sun Yat-sen uh, Memorial. Uh, and so I have somewhat of the feeling that, uh, that Jerome has. But I do think they were excessive in the past few years. And I think that the uh, New Year's celebrations could be uh, spaced out a little. I think there's a danger. What I felt uh, several times is there's a huge danger in having hundreds of thousands of people crying together in one spot, the uh, MRT system, everything is overcrowded. I think there's uh, rather a public safety danger. Right. And of course, the Taipei 101 has said um, it, has, it hadn't said it will phase out fireworks. In fact, it didn't say anything about phasing out fireworks at all. It said the event will continue because it's beneficial for Taiwan's tourism sector. Do you see, obviously, they're introducing an LED light show. Do you think that if, if Taipei 101 and the whole of Taipei decided to get rid of fireworks on New Year's Eve, the tourism numbers would drop or there'd be no significant well, I, I drop think, there? I think the LED show is a good idea. I think there's other things to 
substitute for it. I think it could be spaced out, as I say. Uh, actually, you could probably do better for the tourist business by spacing out. And, you know, everybody, the youth, they all love the cheap entertainment. Uh, Taiwan has done very good since democratization with all the activities on the riverbanks, uh, including, you know, smaller scale fireworks on the riverbanks. Uh, just, I think that as it is now, it's a little excessive, and I think it's also a public hazard. And of course, Tai Chung is not having fireworks this year. Well, uh, yeah, Tai Chung, I, I, I can see that. And the, but I, Taipei 101, I think, should have them. Like, and New Year's, you always look for the what the in Australia the coat hanger bridge, and you know there are certain landmarks that have their things. And Taipei 101, I think, has gained that recognition, just like it is now in several major motion picture films. So I, I think they can still have them there, and you know, yeah, cut them out in Taichung. Okay, I, they 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 need to cut down a little anyway. But um, I will give one note of warning if you're watching at Taipei 101, be on the north side. If you're on the south side, once they start going, they start the smoke starts getting in your eyes or in your way. <laughs> And there we go. And that's the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Linda Arrigo. Uh, yes, Linda Arrigo, Eileen Da. And Jerome Keating. Good to see you again, Gavin, always. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.